Hello and welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden, that explores the depths of what cinema has to offer. I want to plug the Patreon real quick here at the beginning. Our Patreon is a way you can support our podcast and join our community of listeners. Go to patreon.com slash cinema of meaning or check out the link in the description below to find out how you can support our podcast and get access to a community discord and find out about upcoming episodes. This week we're talking about Triangle of Sadness from director Ruben Ostland. This is a movie that I got to see at the Cannes Film Festival at the beginning of this year. It ended up winning the Cannes Film Festival. I really enjoyed it then and was excited for it to come out. I got to see it again more recently and Tom also got to check it out. I find it to be a really funny film Mm -hmm. as just like on a basic level, but there's a lot of satire and social commentary and I think it's trying to say or do some interesting things. So I'm interested to hear about your thoughts, if you liked it, and then also just discuss maybe what this movie is trying to say and if it's even accomplishing that or if it's doing commentary well or what that means. So get into some of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get to see it until last week. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like my first impression was it's a very funny movie. As you said, there's clear like satires going on, but it's all, especially in, because the story is divided in these multiple parts. And I felt like, especially the middle part, the section on the boat, there's just a beautiful sense of chaos going on. (laughs) Yes. That just escalates and escalates. (laughs) And I enjoyed it a lot up until that point. I have mixed feelings about the final section. I think I have a sense of what it was trying to say, but then again, it also leaves a lot of stuff open to interpretation. Like maybe, in my opinion, maybe a little bit too much. Like I'm fine with ambiguous endings, but I struggle with endings that leave it so open that there's so many different interpretations that I'm kind of struggling to find like a clear anchor or some kind of solid point to hold on to in as I'm trying to make sense of it. It kind of feels like with endings like that, that the filmmaker either has a very clear interpretation in his mind that he's deliberately obscuring for the audience, or he doesn't really know himself where it's going to go and therefore kind of just lets the audience figure it out. But that's skipping ahead way too much. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of commentaries here that are worth talking about, not just the commentaries themselves, but also how they are used in the story or how they are integrated into the story, which is something that I always really enjoy. And especially when it's done well, can be quite enlightening. And it's a good way to touch on like a variety of complicated and even like sensitive issues without making the whole thing feel too heavy handed and keeping it kind of light and funny. And yeah. Yeah, I think he does a good job of exploring some of these things without getting too self-serious like it's a very on Mm -hmm. the nose movie it's not trying to be like too cool in a sense i think it knows what it's saying and it just kind of puts it out there in whatever way but it's not like it lacks any kind of subtlety there are moments that are extremely unsubtle and very direct but Underneath that, there's also, I think, more complicated things that it's doing subtextually. So, yeah, I appreciate that Mm -hmm. uh, about it. But to what you were saying about the ending, we won't get into spoilers for that yet. But I kind of agree that, you know, there's these three chapters and the way the film is structured kind of does it a disservice where the center chapter, the middle one, is... Mm -hmm 
kind of the best and the most entertaining. And in a weird way, I don't know if this is intentional, but the movie really has like a triangular structure where it's like starts out kind of chill and mild and then like skyrockets in intensity and peaks and kind of hits a climax towards the middle and then sort of levels back out towards the end. And the result of that is by the end, you just kind of are left feeling like, oh, okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I don't know, maybe some of that is on purpose. If it is, I don't know if it really adds that much, but I don't know. I guess let's, do you want to dive in and maybe look at it section by section and just kind of talk about what's happening in each section and what's going on and uh, how it's sort of building up this commentary okay so in chapter one i don't remember the names of the chapters Um, i don't i think chapter one was just called carl and yaya and yaya yes okay chapter one we meet kind of our main characters Mm -hmm. that are going to guide us through this film and it's a young couple both of them are models we meet carl he's a model she's an influencer we meet carl casting for some kind of modeling gig and there's this pretty funny sequence where they are telling the models to do an expensive brand face where they all look kind of mean and dour and have these very like, mm-hmm. you know, unobtainable, like, hard to guess. Exclusive. Yes. And, yeah. and then they are being a cheap brand where they're fun and bubbly and kind of happy, mm-hmm. which is funny, but also extremely true. And it just kind of, there's this little section where it's just kind of sending up the fashion industry in general and modeling and kind of making fun of that and like how it's sort of the like progressive elements of the fashion industry, the environmentalism and all of that kind of stuff is just being played as marketing essentially. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing that I think happens when we're setting up Carl is it's kind of portraying how the male models are being objectified, which I think is an interesting way to start out the film because then when we meet Yaya, Carl's girlfriend, they're eating together at a restaurant and the first sort of scenario that the movie establishes is sort of this commentary on gender roles, but one that is sort of flipping the like traditional, I don't know, it's playing with the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, that was a really funny sequence to me because it felt weirdly relatable even though i've never been in a situation <laughs> yeah, yeah. like that but i can imagine like because what's going on is essentially like the waiter puts the bill on the table and he's looking at yaya who's looking at a phone and she's pretending to not see it and then she kind of thanks him before he's even offered to pay which insinuating that he has to pay and so he's right. he's like wait a second why am i paying <laughs> like, right. i'm fine with paying but i don't want it to be an assumption and I, you know it's like an act of gallantry it's not an expectation and then she tries to kind of wiggle her way out of it she's like oh i didn't see the bill or and then something that i really liked about this sequence is that there's a moment where it the discussion could have ended but he's like yes i'm not buying this (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) i think that is what makes it so relatable because i feel the same way i've also not been in this situation but the way (laughs) the argument is written and unfolds is one that I think anybody who's been in a relationship long enough (laughs) kind of knows how an argument like this can sort of happen where it's like Mm -hmm. it's not really about the thing that's happening it's about (laughs) some kind of larger thing yeah and one person is not willing to let it go because they want to like address Mm -hmm. this bigger issue and the other person can only really see it as being about this specific Mm-hmm. instance of that issue yes yeah, just also there's few things so entertaining as 
catching someone else in their bullshit and knowing <laughs> yeah. you've cornered them or you've busted them. And because that's also what kind of happens. Like he knows, yeah. like you're lying right now. You're playing right. me for a fool. And I, I want to like dig into this. I want to explore this or, you know, just, uh, yeah. But yeah, I think it's an interesting scene in the sense that, as you said, it establishes also that male models are paid way less than female right. models, which makes the kind of the gender dynamic of their dinner date so strange is because she is the one who has more money than the right. other guy has. While at the same time, there's still the kind of traditional gender role at, in place where the man is expected to provide for the woman, even though the woman in this scenario is doing better financially than the man is. But right. I think she does actually pose a somewhat solid counter argument later on when they're in the hotel and he's not letting it go. So she finally breaks down and she explains like, I have to make money now. I'm a model, like I'm going to be done in 10 years or whatever. And I think, I don't remember the exact conversation, but she also saw it as a sign that if he pays, that it was a sign that he is willing to make a sacrifice for her or something. Thing like that take care of yeah that yeah, he'll be she, able to like take care yeah. of her when she can't make money from modeling anymore essentially yeah, yeah. so she, she's kind of accepted that her fate is gonna be like i'm gonna model until i become someone's trophy wife and then that's it and she right. was so she was kind of manipulating him into testing if he could be that person i guess that's what, what was going on there yeah. but i think most generally what this scene at least to me communicated besides commenting on all these gender roles and who's supposed to do what and how has that involved in time i think it's just about the relation that money has in a relationship yes the role that money has in a relationship and kind of how it's culturally significant and the kind of gender roles that's been established and it obviously leads as we see here to kind of these emotional issues where you have just this very personal relationship that's affected by an issue of money it plays into kind of the fears of the future how we see ourselves in 20 30 years it kind of establishes how much of our lives and our concerns and focus is in some way consciously and unconsciously as she does mention at some point she's manipulating him even though she's not actively doing it or even consciously doing it so just how much of all of our attention is really focused on money and just the general yeah. issue of being supported or having support or having means to get by or take care of others or be taken care of by others that to me is what for me elevated the yeah. scene because it's easy to pick at the modeling world for being vain like that's a trope that's been established for Ever since that existed, I think. Right, yeah, so just yeah. just saying like, oh, look, here's some models, but they're actually really superficial and only concerned with Instagram. You know, that to me is not a compelling insight. So I like that it kind of took this twist in a different direction, that it dug a little bit deeper into yeah. the deeper dynamics that are going on here with regards to money and just a financial situation that people can find themselves in. And that's really where it's kind of laying the thematic groundwork for how this chapter is going to connect to the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's something that isn't necessarily obvious immediately. Once we get to the end of this section, we don't have to move on to the next yet if there's more we want to say about this. But there's a pretty hard cut. Once they resolve this argument, mm -hmm. she sort of opens up about kind of manipulating him and they kind of come to this place where they're like, well, let's try to make this relationship work in like this open, honest way. 
he's kind of he's kind of like if i'm remembering correctly he kind of gets to a place where it's like it's fine if you're trying to manipulate me just be honest about it mm-hmm. or like what he really wants is just like an openness and honesty yeah but then it kind of hard cuts to another section which at first seems almost entirely unrelated except for the fact that they're on the boat, Carl and Yaya. So should we move on to that? Or do you think that um, there's anything else? Yeah, I think we can move thing? on. Okay. Chapter two. I Chapter think that was two, called The Yacht. The Yacht. Yeah. We open on a yacht mm-hmm. with some kind of package being dropped off by a helicopter. It's picked up by a boat, brought into the yacht, brought into the kitchen, and it turns out it's Nutella. And then it kind of establishes this luxury yacht that has a bunch of wealthy people on it. And Carl and Yaya are also there on this yacht. We'll eventually find out they're not really like paying to be there. They're there because she is an influencer and is getting to go for free. So there's a little bit of a dynamic of they're kind of the odd ones out. Mm -hmm. But then we get into like the real (laughs) meat of the movie or the fun. They seem to fit quite well. They do. They do. They're trying their best at least to. And they're kind of pulling it off of fitting into this world of, Mm -hmm. you know, the bourgeoisie wealthy people or whatever mm-hmm. which is kind of like a tiny point of tension in the beginning section where they start having the argument in the restaurant but it's a really like upscale restaurant and they've agreed it's kind of stuffy and then like they start arguing and they almost get kicked out because they're being loud so it's also yeah. sort of class dynamics and mm-hmm. money and gender are the three things that are constantly kind of at play in this movie in some way or another mm-hmm. one thing i want to say real quick about the yacht section A lot of the more ridiculous elements of this yacht, well, I shouldn't say the more ridiculous elements, some of these elements about people making unrealistic demands or just the way in which the sort of staff and crew wait hand and foot on the guests is not an exaggeration. There's a really great article about yachts from the New Yorker. I don't remember the name of it, but I read this. But things like having Nutella flown in on a helicopter and dropped off just Mm -hmm. so that you can have Nutella on your breakfast or whatever are not actually outside the realm of what happens in some of these these scenarios. It's over the top, but at the same time, a lot of it is very imaginable and (laughs) in some ways relatable. It's probably relatable if you've been on the other end of it. You know, I'm guessing not a lot of people relate to being among the top 1% billionaires, but a lot of the people do relate to having at one point had a service job in which they had to deal with people who were either in that category or really wanted to be there and acted like they were. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's. I think that's also where the movie kind of introduces this new layer of now we have not just a couple, but now we have this layer of class and then there's a class beneath them that kind of that gives and one that takes, one services the other, the other just enjoys. And there's immediately a kind of tension between them that almost immediately really turns into kind of a violent escalation where you have Yaya checking out this shirtless worker on the roof of the right. yacht. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Carl, he's kind of jealous because he's... You know, it's a good looking dude and he has like all the working class charm and grit. And so he complains to the, I don't think she wasn't the captain, but like the first mate or something. Yeah. Paula was her name. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know the hierarchy. But yeah, (laughs) she's basically the one running the show because a detail I'm sure we'll get to at some point is the captain played by Woody Harrelson for the 
majority of the time that we spend on the boat is locked away in his cabin, mm-hmm. drunk apparently. Yeah. Uh, so he's just a wall. So Paula's kind of just <laughs> running things on her own. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, Carl complains to Paula about him being shirtless and. She immediately fires the guy and Carl is kind of like taken aback by, oh shit, like that wasn't my intention. He just kind of, he kind of realizes that the kind of power he wields in that kind of class division that he's kind of shaken by it even, but not enough to really make a point of it or to to do something about (laughs) it, which I think is also very telling about his character. He's someone who kind of stands by and waits and sees and doesn't really do a lot it's not really the kind of guy to stand up in a difficult situation yeah especially if he tends to lose something but yeah he's willing to exercise his privilege but he's not willing to kind of examine mm-hmm. like the consequences of that or he yeah he's not super aware of the situation or the dynamic that scene is really funny to me just because the thing i love about ruben ostland in how he makes these films is Often the funniest element of the scene is not necessarily a line or a punchline or a joke, but just a little detail, like when there's like flies buzzing around in that scene a lot. But Mm -hmm. when Carl goes down into the deck to find Paula, he's walking around in like swim trunks and flip flops and is shirtless while he's complaining about this crew member being shirtless and then they start having this conversation about engagement rings and he's like standing there looking at engagement rings shirtless this entire time and it's just like the staging of the whole thing Mm -hmm. he makes that point which is pretty obvious but then he like drags it on and it just like (laughs) extends and emphasizes sort of the absurdity of the dynamic i don't know it's very it's yeah. very funny. I also watched The Square over the weekend because I hadn't seen any of his films, so I wanted to lay some foundation for this one. But that was also a movie. That one focuses more on, I felt like, the relation between art and morality and class to some extent and the yeah. way all the tensions that arise from the dynamics between those elements. But that movie was also really interesting in the way that it kind of zeroes in on all these little interactions to make a great point where instead of necessarily making the great point directly. Right. So I would say I feel his style is a more sophisticated version of a film like uh, Don't Look Up. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because it's not quite as like heavy capital C cinema as something like Parasite, which is very much, I don't know how to describe it, far more self-serious and dramatic movie, right. even though that one also does have its own sense of it humor. Has a, yeah. Yeah. There's comedic elements, but it's not a comedy, so to speak. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I felt like Ostland is really, of the two films that I've seen of his, he does feel like he has developed a particular style that I'm interested to see yeah. more of. And that I feel is very effective at balancing different tonalities while also kind of zeroing in on these little absurdities and these little details that end up accumulating into a greater point that would otherwise feel kind of platonic or is platonic yeah. the right word or like a platitude you know that's right, what I was right, trying right. to say yeah. yes i also highly recommend force majeure which is kind of like if you just took the first chapter of this and just dragged that out into an entire movie it's about a hmm. a husband and wife who have an argument basically over the course of a vacation and <laughs> uh, it's also very funny but anyway movie at hand is This one. And so, yeah, we're introduced also to a bunch of the wealthy characters on the yacht. There's like a Russian oligarch 
who, in his words, literally sells shit. He's in the fertilizer business. Mm -hmm. There's a wealthy single guy who, as far as I can tell, basically is supposed to represent Notch. I think he's Swedish game developer. Oh, I, um, didn't. I don't know who that who is. Who developed Minecraft and uh, oh, yeah. sold it to Microsoft for a huge amount of money. And based on all the stories I've heard, basically has done nothing since then and just like throws parties and lives kind of like a sad... <laughs> great Gatsby kind of life in Los Angeles now. But the character, he literally like says he sells code and he looks almost exactly like Notch. So I think it's a reference to him. Oh uh, yeah, he does look like him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, he's he's uh, just someone who accidentally fell into a giant pot of wealth and yes. isn't sure how what to do with it. What to do with it. <laughs> except um, celebrate. Except celebrate. And try to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he like it's like he doesn't even really the interesting thing about him, there's a scene where the Russian guy and Carl are kind of watching him from a distance and they're like kind of taking bets on whether or not he's gonna work up the courage to go over and talk to their partners who are at the bar. And they're kind of like finding it funny, but then he does and he goes over and the girls give him a lot of attention just kind of for fun. And they get so kind of sour about it. But I think the funny dynamic about the kind of Notch character is like he just wants to like buy expensive things for these women. He doesn't really have that much expectation mm. outside of that. It's a very sort of odd dynamic. Yeah, I thought at first that maybe he kind of represented this character who literally had nothing to offer of personal value except his huge wealth like he didn't have right. he had money but he didn't have the rich guy mindset you know he didn't yeah. come across as this sly yet genius entrepreneur or someone who kind of worked their way up from the ground and or inherited wealth or you know whatever usual direction there is to that kind of wealth it felt like he kind of just cheated his way into it and so he <laughs> yeah. literally is a kind of imposter to some extent but it's interesting that because then his money becomes the only interesting point of interaction that he has with the other characters on that boat because you know otherwise he would just not be noticed especially by ladies like that who are used to dealing with more of those so to say high class men yeah but it felt like they actually ended up having kind of fun with him because at first you're kind of because the way they set it up as you said it we have the men looking at him they're kind of expecting him to fail and so as the audience like i was also expecting him to go up to the ladies and say something really awkward or offensive to them or something like creepy but he just asks them for a picture and then he lets them you know he lets them be until he is called into the conversation himself by them and then they just kind of start having some fun and it turns out maybe he's actually just a really yeah. fun guy he <laughs> might be the funnest guy to hang out with on the boat but <laughs> yeah but at the same time he does want to buy rolexes for them he, right. you know, he's, he's like let's not beat around the bush like i'm super rich I... <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. The thing is, when you have a movie like this with all these little scenes is that you'll relate to some or like some of them will yeah. seem to convey something very clearly, whereas others might feel like a little bit more ambiguous or unclear. Like for me, one of the most telling scenes on that boat was actually the one where you have this older lady who is trying to get one of the members of the staff into the swimming pool. Yes. And from her perspective, she's trying to do him or she's trying to do her a favor like, oh, you're working too hard, come Come yeah. and relax for a bit, which you can interpret as someone that she genuinely wants to kind of relieve them of their burden a little bit. Like, you know, she's trying to communicate, I'm fine, I'm relaxed, come relax with us. 
while not understanding like the way she's significantly upsetting the entire structure of the <laughs> right. yeah, whole yeah. service crew. But <laughs> because now everyone has to swim and so the chefs down there with the food that's about to be spoiled unless they prepare it. But no, the cooks have to go up and go in the swimming pool. And you can see the discomfort in the, I'm not sure what her character's name was, the service girl, I'd say. That to me was a very relatable even yeah. though, again, I've not been in a literal situation like that, but you can really feel that tension. You can really feel the disconnect between the service class in that situation and the upper class in that situation. Even though the one is do, trying to do a favor to the other, they're still not perceiving that they're actually causing harm and putting them in a really awkward place and right. just generally making things worse for them instead of offering them like a relief or a helping hand. I also really like that sequence right at the beginning of that scene. She's telling this crew member to stop working basically and like mm -hmm. relax, but they're not allowed to say no. And so she's like mm -hmm. trying Custom to, she's caught yeah. <laughs> into this perfect catch 22 scenario where yeah. she's being commanded by one of the guests to do the one thing she can't do, which is not work. Not mm -hmm. and uh, like a dividing by zero. Yes, yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> that whole sequence and the, like everybody going for a swim bit, and then it just being not at all this fun thing, but just kind of. Mm -hmm. I haven't been in that scenario with you know like a guest or someone where they're making a demand of me, but it fits very well into something I have experienced, which is the idea of like corporate fun, where if you work mm -hmm. for a big company or something, they'll be like, "We've got this mandated." It happens in Severance where it's like. Like, you know, you've got like pizza party or whatever it is, uh, <laughs> waffle party. That's what it yeah. is in severance. And it's like the person or entity in the position of power kind of almost recognizes this like imbalance and mm -hmm. tries to compensate for that. But it doesn't work because now you're just being forced at, you know, mm -hmm. knife point into having fun. Yeah. And it, <laughs> that's not what, that's not what makes things fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of when I was a bit younger, like my parents and I and my sister, a couple of times we went to Egypt to stay at like these resorts, these all-inclusive resorts in the desert. You know, something like a lot of people in the Netherlands, some of them in the wintertime, it's cold here. So in the wintertime, they'll go for a week to like an all-inclusive resort in either like Southern Turkey or Egypt, someplace that's warm. They kind of offer this luxury experience, even though it's quite cheap. It's kind of the luxury for working class people. Yeah. Even then, I thought it was interesting to see the kind of dynamics that you have at a resort like that, because it's also, you have, like in this movie, you have us in this case as the kind of class that's being taken care of. And then there's a lot of service people working hard, like to maintain that sense of comfort and sense of enjoyment. But there's also, you see it a lot, like luckily my parents didn't do that, but I saw like, especially in the evening, there's a lot of people that kind of get drunk. They start to have party, but then they start to pressure also like the staff members and the you know, you have animation people there and they kind of start to pressure them and I'm like, come and take a drink with us. Just relax. And yeah. And so that's what this movie reminded and that scene in particular reminded me of is just the way that, and it happens so quickly because these are not like the 1%. These are working class people that have some money at the end of the year and they can afford a little trip like this and pretend to be rich for a little bit or pretend yeah. to be in this upper class for a bit. But even then, it's interesting to see how quickly they assume that role and develop that relation with the people beneath them because it's very quickly they also see that a lot of the service people, they try to make personal connections to some extent, mostly for tips or for whatever. But I thought it was interesting to see how easily 
the people there, they take advantage of that. Like they connect with some of the service members, but then almost immediately they make him like their little service boy. Like they kind of lose all shame in asking for more or letting them do this or asking yeah. them to do that, even if it's beyond or outside of their, what they are actually supposed to offer you. So yeah, that to me is the was the most telling aspect about this movie in many ways, is just how quickly that dynamic can arise. You know, in this movie, yeah. we see the it's between service people and the ultra wealthy, but it's something that I think that happens far more easily and far more often than you would see as if you'd only have this movie to go on. But yeah, the other dynamic that I really find interesting about how he sets up things on the boat is it's not just two sort of stratifications. You have the mm -hmm. wealthiest people at the top. You have Carl and Yaya who are kind of in that position, but sort of newbies to it or a little bit out of place. They're kind of, you know, maybe stuck in between. Then you have the crew members and they are obviously below the wealthy guests, but they are all kind of white Europeans. And mm -hmm. below that you have the kitchen guys, the cleaning ladies, the engine people, and they're sort of in the background. They aren't even seen. And this is where a lot of the people of color are or like immigrant workers are and that in the movie is just a reflection of how it is a lot of times in these kind of situations. Mm. But that's set up in this section a little bit in the background. He doesn't call too much attention to it, but it kind of lays the groundwork for the final chapter, which I think we can start getting into. But first, we should touch on kind of the big explosive yeah. uh, ending to the yacht section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's also where the captain comes out or yes. finally comes into the scene. He, yeah. We don't see him until quite late. But he's also a really interesting character, I thought. He immediately gets in this kind of frenemy relation with the Russian capitalist. Yes. Because he sees himself as a Marxist who's kind of failed because he's a kind of affluent yacht captain. So he's obviously okay. done well financially, which then he feels kind of conscious stricken about. It appears that might be why he's just wasted for most of the <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> most of the trip. But yeah, they get in a sort of argument, and that's also where I feel like he's an interesting insert character for everyone who kind of feels there's a lot of people who have like anti-capitalist sentiments while still living in a capitalist society and right even like the more fervent like marxists and even the communists they still live in a capitalist context and they don't know most of them at least here in the west they don't know what it's even like to live in there what they would see as the more ideal society so that to me was an interesting tension that was kind of embodied by his character that a lot of those people and including like even I myself like I think we all have to some extent our reservations or you know our criticisms of the world we live in and then we kind of feel morally um, yeah. troubled I would say about or conflicted about still having to live in a world that's not as we would like it to be but yeah I thought he was a kind of interesting character to embody that without him being like just a more stereotypical hypocrite, which we've also seen plenty of already. Yeah, yeah. If you've been enjoying this episode of Cinema of Meaning, you can listen to even more on Nebula. Each month on Nebula, we release a bonus episode. In November, the bonus episode was about the 2022 version of All Quiet on the Western Front. And in December, we recorded an episode about Avatar 2, The Way of Water. There's a bunch of other great bonus episodes, and we add one each month. And in addition to those bonus episodes, you get access to the normal episodes without any ads or sponsorships and an entire week before anyone else 
hears it on the public feed. Nebula gives you your own private RSS feed that you can plug into your favorite podcast player so you can keep listening to the podcast the same way you always have. If you don't have Nebula yet, you can sign up using the link in the description. Go to curiositystream.com slash cinema of meaning. CuriosityStream is a documentary and educational content streaming service with a huge library, and they've partnered with Nebula to create this bundle. When you sign up for CuriosityStream using our link, you'll also get access to Nebula for free for as long as you stay signed up for CuriosityStream. Right now, over the holidays, use code Cinema of Meaning for 42% off the annual plan for the bundle. That means you'll get an entire year of the bundle for only $11.59. Go to CuriosityStream.com slash Cinema of Meaning to sign up today and get access to bonus episodes of Cinema of Meaning. I like the little swapping of roles where you have this. You have a Marxist American ship captain and a capitalist Russian oligarch kind of duking (laughs) it out. And there's a big set piece here in the movie that I think, to me, embodies, uh, parts of it embody what I think the movie does effectively for me, which is kind of, it doesn't ultimately, and we'll get to this maybe towards the end, but ultimately Mm -hmm. I don't think this movie has much to say in terms of like, hey, here's a solution or, you know, this is bad and so this would be a better alternative or something like that. Mm -hmm. The image that this movie conjures for me or the feeling is this one of you got all these people on this ship and the ship is the world or capitalism or whatever you, you know, whatever you want to call the ship and there's a storm and it's under threat and everybody's just kind of yeah. pretending that they're having right a good at time. dinner time. Yeah. A special dinner. <laughs> there's a special dinner. It's fancy food. The captain's just kind of, he's eating his hamburger and fries and everybody else is eating hmm. like gross uh, raw fish and stuff like that. Fine dining food. Fine dining <laughs> while, while, while they're getting seasick. Yeah. And everybody just has to try to maintain this sense of decorum. And but of mm-hmm. course, it all just goes terribly. There's puke everywhere. It's, mm. you know, it's it's a terrible mess. But the most interesting part of this to me is and I'm curious what you think about this. But, mm-hmm. you know, the Woody Harrelson character, he's a little he's a little bit more interesting than the stereotypical hypocrite uh, like you described. But there's still this element of the Marxist and the capitalist kind of sit down and they throw theory. They're like quoting different people <laughs> and telling jokes. I like that scene. And yeah. kind of th- discussing things and throwing theory back and forth at each other. But that also isn't really doing anything. They're also kind of ignoring the the problem, mm-hmm. the storm, whatever's happening. They're also caught in the midst of it. And I don't know if there's a more direct like commentary there from Ostland on like, hey, sometimes the discussions that surround these things are so divorced from the reality of what's happening that, you know, they're not really helping anything. It's just you drunk talking with the other guy while the ship sinks or whatever. And they're talking over the intercom. So it's also whatever they are saying, it's (laughs) it's being broadcast heightened for it's being broadcast. It's it's the only thing that the other characters hear. So there's (laughs) this sense that they're that they're kind of, yeah, as you said, they're broadcasting it. They're not just having the conversation privately with themselves. You know, they they have everyone else hear it yeah. and kind of be part of it too in that sense. It's a metaphor for Twitter. 
It's a metaphor for Twitter, maybe. <laughs> it's a metaphor for, I don't know. It was, it was very interesting to be watching this movie at the Cannes Film Festival because, like, mm -hmm. Cannes, France, the place is South France. There's, like, Gucci stores on the street. You know, you walk outside. It's all black tie, nice Michelin star restaurants. Literally in the bay, there's, like, yachts mm -hmm. like this one sitting there, huge sailboats. Uh, all these wealthy people gathering together to celebrate art and film and cinema. And class distinction is a very, like, like this kind of class stratification is very tangible like when you're at the Cannes Film Festival because there's like you know there's like service members there's wealthy people who are coming in on cars there's like the people who are staying in the really nice hotels and basically get escorted in and then there's the people who are like lining up outside the red carpet like just trying to look over somebody else's shoulder to catch the tiniest glimpse of like you know a famous actor or something and in the midst of this very, like, opulent environment, you have a lot of movies that are essentially like, hey, you know, things are bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Capitalism, you know, it's like the, yeah. the kind of films that play at Cannes are often very socially aware, often, you know, trying to discuss important issues. And I don't think that's bad. I don't have a problem with that. I think that's great. I think cinema should do that. But there's a weird tension you feel in that kind of environment. And so mm. then so to watch a movie like this in that environment is also kind of embodies that feeling a little bit of, you know, to what extent is this just people, you know, shouting into an intercom while, you know, a storm rages against the ship or whatever. I, I don't get the feeling the movie is trying to undercut itself in that in that scene really i guess there's a an interpretation to be made about the storm is climate change and we're all in the same boat at the end of the day literally in this movie but you know that right that feels so on the nose that it's <laughs> I, I'm, I'm i'm not sure i even want to like go there <laughs> i don't think it's too on the nose for what the movie is trying to convey there's literally mm -hmm. a moment where woody harrelson's character kind of like looks into the camera and gives mm -hmm. this little scree. I don't remember exactly what he says at this point. It's been slightly too long since I saw it. But he kind of does a little bit what feels to me like preaches to the audience. It like mm -hmm. feels like the most on-the-nose moment in the film. I don't think that undercuts the movie as a whole. I think it's doing a lot of... But it mm -hmm. it is, I think, definitely teeters almost into that territory of being like hey we're i'm trying to communicate yep. a message to you yeah but maybe the irony of that is just part of the joke i don't know yeah i'm not sure for me I, I i tend to have mixed feelings about that and this is i guess a more general point about movies like these is that you can create this or end up in this situation where you have a movie that's really critical and really poignant in pointing out like certain wrongs in a society but then the audience that watches it, it goes out and sort of validated maybe like, oh, I thought this was wrong too. And this movie shows exactly that. But then instead of really having it be this genuine call to action, it becomes more of a thing where watching that movie has been a perceived moral accomplishment in its own right, where you right. already feel like you've done your part by having seen the movie and thinking the same things that the movie does, <laughs> right, which, yeah, you know, yeah. that's, that's a situation that comes up 
with every now and then with a movie like this and which is a really interesting topic to explore i i think the just the way that movie really um motivate or really can help to motivate action or whether they also can maybe be an a tool to kind of subdue because it's it's interesting like a lot of big studios are kind of making these anti-big studio or anti-capitalist <laughs> right. movies now even though they're reliant on the capitalist system it reminds me of that quote from uh, the matrix four i think it was where the uh, one of the character kind of laments uh, about the matrix taking this thing that they love or value so much and then turning it into this to kind of rendering it meaningless by turning it into kind of this commercial thing or oppressive is a bit too harsh but um a kind of you know something that's antithetical to what it was originally supposed to be like it's that kind of thing where the revolution itself has now become an aspect of capitalism or anti-capitalism has become not a genuine movement against capitalism but a just a subsection of it that is kind of like a controlled opposition in a way yeah uh without really without genuinely threatening capitalism but yeah that might be a that, that's a discussion that goes uh, way beyond this movie <laughs> yes yeah. a, this movie itself <laughs> my my takeaway because i agree i think that's a fascinating discussion that i don't know mm -hmm. the answer to but that is worth i think exploring and that also i agree goes beyond the scope of this and a and applies in a very complicated way to a lot of things. I think for me, at the end of the day, what this movie gets at is what you're describing, that tension, is kind of mm -hmm. a terrifying, like, ironic sort of situation to find yourself in if you are skeptical of capitalism and you're like, hey, you know, how can we critique this? How can we try to fix this situation or advocate for something else? And you, you mm -hmm. realize sort of the situation you're in, it can be this kind of very almost like like impossible feeling situation. This movie, I think, is less trying to say something meaningful about that and more so tapping into that feeling for humor or to create humor. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like putting that feeling on a plate and being like, look at how absurd this situation is. Yeah allowing you as the viewer to sort of like appreciate like engage with that idea through the mm -hmm. comedy of it whether or not that's ultimately like means anything or does anything productive in the world who knows but i think it's an interesting a dynamic to kind of take that tension and relieve it a little bit through you know through the humor of it yeah definitely maybe that is a good segue into the final the storm happens yeah. we kind of make it through the storm in a huge mess but then pirates attack oh yeah i almost forgot about that the, the, <laughs> that's how the ship crashes it's, yeah. it's not actually the storm that uh, <laughs> it's not actually the storm yeah that leaves them stranded and then a small group of survivors in chapter three washes up on an island and the whole dynamic the whole triangle of hierarchy the whole class structure gets, and gen, and gender structure gets flipped on its head because suddenly the most powerful person in this genuine survival situation is Abigail, who on the boat was a toilet cleaner, but now has the yeah. most practical knowledge. She's the captain now. She's the captain now, as she says. <laughs> she knows how to catch fish. She knows how to start a fire. The Russian oligarch 
Carl mm-hmm. and Yaya, Therese, the German woman who can only say, or German or Dutch woman who can only say... Mm-hmm. Uh, German, I think, or Danish, maybe? Yeah. She can only say, in the clouds, I think, in der yeah. Vulcan. And there's a guy from the crew, the engine crew. Um, uh, Jarmo, the, the Minecraft owner. Oh, yes. Avatar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there might be a few other... I think that's all of them. Uh, did you mention Paula? Oh, and Paula, yes. Yeah. Because that's the funny thing is, at first, Paula is trying to maintain her authority, but she very quickly gets mm-hmm. undercut and kind of put in her place by Abigail, who knows how to do things, and Paula doesn't. Yeah. She still, at first, lives in this illusion, like this, the same dynamic on the boat is still existing here, right. even though everything's clearly the boat's completely <laughs> yes. gone. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she, she still feels that responsibility to take care of the guests, even though now they're just all survivors on this island, deserted or not deserted. Spoiler alert, it's not deserted. <laughs> right. <laughs> I It's clearly filmed in the Mediterranean. So I was already, I kind of recognized the type of landscape. So I was already figured like, how, how does one get lost in the Mediterranean like that? That right. <laughs> just doesn't really happen. <laughs> and then it turns out they uh, didn't. I also get the feeling, I don't think they're there for that long. Like the last chapter mm-hmm. is kind of ambiguous in terms of how much time they spend there. Yeah. But you could almost imagine that they're there for like three or four days or like something yeah, like that. Two weeks at the most. Two, two weeks at the most. It's not that long, but they're just like, oh, you know, they so quickly, <laughs> <laughs> they so quickly become like savages, yeah. basically. Yeah. That They eat uh, the bag of pretzels on day <laughs> two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they burn through their rations pretty quickly. Their, their yeah. clothes turns into tatters. The Russian capitalist mm. oligarch suddenly becomes an advocate for um, Marxist redistribution mm. of wealth as soon as he's not in <laughs> possession of it, of it. Um. <laughs> yeah because that's the thing also they at first they strand kind of individually but then abigail strands with this lifeboat that, yeah. that's clearly like the object of power in that situation because it's this it's a full fully covered raft you can sleep indoors you it's full of uh, rations and so that puts her in the place of power right away even though at first she it feels like she's uh she almost gives it up like because paula arrives on the beach paula knocks on the door she sees all the rations and she's like okay toilet lady hand it over because we have to take care of the guests and then that's kind of what happens at first until abigail's like wait a second why am i still pretending to be in this hierarchy that's just been sunk to the bottom and you know why not claim power and that I now have or that I'm owed or that I that's just available for me for the taking. This is the section that I feel most conflicted about because I think for one, I just, it, it's once again where the same thing where you, if you want to make the, the, the boat as a metaphor for us being all in the same boat, you know, there's, there's a very superficial reading of this section that to me kind of feels a little eh. Uh, where you have this, you know, just the idea of pointing out that what if we're all like stripped from society, then the rich people wouldn't be wouldn't know what to do with themselves, and the service people they are the ones who are suddenly reveal themselves to be like right. the true survivors. Which 
I don't think is necessarily true. Like, I, I don't think a toilet cleaning lady necessarily knows how to make fire and catch fish and do all the survival stuff. Like, I think that, you know, as a literal kind of scenario, you know, I think that most people in Western society would kind of not make it when they're suddenly stranded on a deserted island and have to go back to sort of the essentials of life. I don't think that's necessarily a class issue as much as it is just a general civilization issue. But as a more, if you if you take it less literal and more metaphorically about how the wealthy are dependent on the service people, whereas the service people would know better how to take care for themselves. I, I'm not sure if that's actually true in the sense, in the way that's communicated here, because, you know, the kind of the reality is that service people also rely on the means that are offered to them by the wealthy people. You know, if no one pays the toilet lady to clean toilets, so to say, then she also would not have any means or way of supporting herself. But yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure how that metaphor is supposed to be interpreted. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure if if it's commenting on that dynamic in any kind of interesting way i think more so my read of the that scenario there or i think what it's trying to do within the context of the film is is going like hey this structure of power created by one person having access to more of the resources it like it creates this power dynamic that is just kind of you know not necessarily unavoidable but like there's an inherent power dynamic there that kind of just tends to to manifest itself or that people find very difficult to sort of resist. And the fact yep. that these people are in this position now is, is not necessarily because they, you know, worked harder to get there or something, but it's just like, that's how the chips fell. They have the resources. So they get to ride around on the fancy yachts while Abigail cleans the toilets. If you mix things up and like threw the dice out on the board a different way, you know, maybe yep. this time Abigail comes out on the yacht and then like the Russian guy has to clean the toilets or something. Yeah, I think also just to clarify my own position, I, I think it what it does show is that once you kind of strip a society from the kind of the capitalist influences, then you it, it does reveal like what has been truly essential for a society to function. And then like all the wealth is not what's ultimately important for a group of people to stay alive. You know, it's ultimately the real merit comes from the working class or the service class in this case. So yeah, in that sense, it's not really in our society, they are equally dependent on each other. But as this movie or this sequence shows, it's not how that's supposed to be because that's in a kind of more natural situation one of those would not would be rendered useless whereas the other one would still have valuable traits or which should be therefore deemed more valuable in the society that we live in now where it is not yeah if that makes yeah. sense yeah i think ultimately too the really what the main thing about this section is like besides whatever he's maybe commenting on is it's just funny to kind of see this dynamic play out with the tables turned and so it's it's entertaining to see abigail kind of like grabbing and and it's like it's played up in a sort of absurdist comedic way especially once we get to sort of the flipping of the gender dynamic where 
what's set up at the beginning kind of comes back into play. And now we mm -hmm. have, because Abigail is a woman and is interested in the men, Carl, Carl specifically, yeah. he kind of becomes her trophy husband. And she's mm. like paying, boy toy. she's paying him in pretzels and he's passing those pretzels over to Yaya. And so sort of the dynamic that they, that, Yaya was imagining for her future of being a trophy husband and getting these resources becomes reversed or a trophy wife. Yeah. becomes reversed. Carl's tr Carl's the trophy husband. The way they, they play with that dynamic is also kind of mm -hmm. fun and absurd. And I think kind of exaggerated for yeah. comedic effect. Yeah. I, I liked how it, how all that played out. I think it's an interesting twist on the otherwise more straightforward story of Wealthy people on an island are useless, and the surface right. people are now the heroes. Because it, it it adds that extra layer of complexity with regards to the way money and power and general like means. Because uh, in this case, it's not money, but it's pretzels and other stuff uh, plays into human relationships and social structures. Even in this small case scenario of just a few. Uh, stranded people on an island but yeah other than that i'm i'm not too sure what to make of it all beyond maybe it's just what uh, what we just discussed but yeah. um i feel like there's also something here about the way people can change like can they really adapt to new situations or how would people respond to new new situations when you take them out of a an existing structure and you place them into a new one like what happens do people revert back to where they were or do they right. assume a new role but they just or they kind of assume the same structure but they just kind of try to assimilate for themselves a new position within it um i feel like that's there's also a lot of that going on, on like seeing how people shuffle around when a new structure collapses for a new one and what that if that really genuinely change changes the structure or that it just stays the same with different people in different positions. But yeah, I guess that's also uh, for a lot of the individual characters, a personal matter, like which characters yeah. kind of fall back into a same position where whereas others take on a new one or try to be someone else. Um, like Abigail, I think most, uh, most prominently probably. I think inevitably our conversation here will kind of fizzle because mm. to me, this is the weakest part of the movie where it just sort of it's set up all these dominoes and instead of all of them kind of falling down in a very satisfying line at the end they all just kind of like collapse in different directions and some of them stay standing yeah. and uh it just sort of like comes to a close and mm -hmm. i don't you know I, I i'm not left with like this profound sense of like oh wow that all came together to mean something yeah really interesting it's more like that was a wild ride and funny mm -hmm. and now it's now it's over and now we go back we go through the elevator door back into our you know resort life of you know mm -hmm. whatever yeah it's kind of like a roller coaster where you have the exciting part and then there's the part where you have to kind of slowly <laughs> slowly drive ride back, back to around the, the station yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah so just to recap the ending there's Yaya and Abigail, they go on a hike over the mountain to see what's there. And as that's happening, back at the camp, we see the German or Danish or 
uh, I'm pretty sure she's German. Yeah, yeah. German. Inda Woken is German, but yeah. Um, but anyway, she is sitting in her little boat because she's uh, uh, paralyzed. I think it was, or she 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 couldn't talk because she had, she suffered a stroke or something. Yeah. Um, and she meets one of those. If you've been to a beach in Europe, they're really recognizable, like this uh, beach seller. Like that, there's a lot of those, uh, especially immigrants and uh, people from Africa that they kind of go to European beaches and they sell like fake uh, sunglasses and fake Rolexes and stuff and um, just other beach things that you would uh, hats and that sort of stuff, which kind of tells us like, oh, they're not on a deserted island; they're actually in just a regular island with yeah. people, other people living there. And at the same time that she finds out, or she has that revelation, we, on the other side of the mountain, Yaya and Abigail, they also inc- come across this resort, or at least the entrance to a resort. Like it's an, There's an elevator that goes up, and Yaya wants to go up straight away, but Abigail's like, oh, let's enjoy this moment. So Yaya sits down, Abigail grabs a rock, she's about to hit her in the head uh, when... Yaya makes this proposition like, oh, Abigail, maybe I can help you. Well, she's not facing her, so it's not clear if she's know, if he knows what, if she knows what's going on. Uh, but she's like, I can help you. Maybe you can be my assistant if we get back and I can do good things for you. And then we, we don't see what happened, but we cut to Carl running through the same bushes, I think it was. Yeah. Um, really distressed and in a hurry. And he's like cutting himself on all the branches and he's screaming it out and then the movie just that's when it ends that's when it ends yeah so yeah i i don't really know what i don't <laughs> what literally to know what happened <laughs> i saw an interpretation that abigail that had actually killed off all the other members off screen and that she was now taking yaya out as the final victim and then and that carl found found out about it and she was he was running to s- save yaya but I'm not sure to what extent that holds up. Uh, the other two interpretations is just that either Yaya gets hit by the rock or gets killed by Abigail, which I think is the preferred interpretation by the director, or he said like that he that that's what happens, or that maybe Abigail has some conscience uh, epiphany and she does not go through with killing Yaya, and then I don't know. My my read is kind of that she does hit Abigail with the rock because I don't think the you can be my assistant is going to be a very convincing proposition for Abigail. She mm-hmm. was not at all the the like Russian oligarch and some of the other rich guys try to convince her like, oh, if you, you know, if you treat us nice, we will we'll do, you know, we'll make it very worth your while once we get rescued or whatever. Yeah. And she's like not at all interested in that. So I kind of took it as she's not going to be convinced by that. And she seems pretty set on offing Yaya. And I think that might have been part of her plan anyway, because I feel like Carl, the reason he's running at the end is because he was getting suspicious that she might do that essentially because mm-hmm. she's tired of paying off Yaya so that she can be with uh, be with Carl. But, you know, it's ambiguous. We don't know. Maybe she hides the rock and, oh, they go up into the elevator and they're all saved. And Yeah, because I can also imagine that she's, as a more 
working class person. She knows how to survive and she knows that this situation is not a sustainable one, that at some point right, there, yeah. this is not a situation that she can sustain forever. So there has to be some, that there's going to be some point inevitably where she has to face the facts that and just go back to the real world, which still maybe leaves it open-ended that she just kills Yaya out of spite. But uh, yeah, for me, there's too many just it's just a little bit too open so that i can interpret it in too many ways and also in ways that would significantly change my the kind of the meaning that's communicated by it yeah and so yeah that's because it's different like with an ending like inception which is also open-ended with regards to is cop dreaming or is it the reality but i think that is one that either way it still plays out the same thematically there's still a strong thematic message you know something similar in the shadow island or something like that you can yeah. have ambiguous endings that still communicate a clear thematic message but right. i feel like that's n- not really what at least not on my first feeling you know it's, yeah. i've only seen it once maybe i changed my mind later but um as it is now i didn't see like a clear singular statement that still has ambiguity as to how things play out more specifically, but yeah, the yeah, I think the the ambiguity doesn't really serve the story in any kind of way. It just feels like the it just feels like the movie kind of runs out at the end. So that's that. I wish it was a little tidier. Uh, I wish it had come together a little bit more cohesively at the end. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of willing to forgive it because of the laughs yep. I had along mm-hmm. the way. It's still a fun, uh, fun roller coaster. Yes, and, uh, fun roller coaster. It, it's, for me, it was worth watching for the opening set scene alone with the yeah. the, the dinner conversation and the the, the chaotic uh, uh, escalation on the yacht, which yeah. is one of the funniest things I've seen in a while. <laughs> it is. It's very trigger content warning. I guess people, if you're listening to this, people have watched it already. But <laughs> there is more poop and puke than I've ever seen in a movie. I think, yeah. uh, <laughs> except for the movie. Have you ever seen the Russian film? Um, it's a black and white Russian film. It's kind of like a science fiction, and it's just this guy comes lands on a, a this like alien being lands on a, pl- a medieval planet. And it's just like mud and filth everywhere for for like three hours. It's a I've not insane seen that, movie. <laughs> uh, oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. If you're listening to this and you know the movie I'm talking about, let us know. So <laughs> let us know on Twitter. <laughs> I, I might have remembered by then and told told Tom about it. But <laughs> it's a black and white Russian film, I think, from 2012, with just mud and poop everywhere uh (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know maybe that describes multiple movies (laughs) but yeah that set piece is is something else and it was a lot of fun to watch in a very full theater at Cannes. uh Hmm. and it like he gets like punk music playing there's just like a playful kind of energy to that that sequence where it like it knows it's over the top it knows it's ridiculous yeah but uh, it's just it's just going for it anyway. If you have played Tony Hawk's Underground back in the day, you'll <laughs> recognize the music. It's okay. just some of the same heavy metal tracks. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Which was really fun. But yeah, so lots of fun, but also some interesting, um, yeah. interesting commentaries. Um, 
that, that the way. go beyond like the, uh, the the usual platitudes and stereotypes a little bit. This is the most this is the most over the top. If you enjoy if you watch and enjoy this one though, I definitely recommend the square and uh, force majeure is really fun as well. So, uh, Ruben Osland, very fun uh, filmmaker. He he hits such a unique niche in terms of comedy that I think like nobody else is really touching. So I'll take what I can get in the comedy realm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can support it in two ways. One by joining our Patreon, which I already mentioned. That's patreon.com slash cinema of meaning. Check out the links in the description below. You can join our community and get access to our bonus episodes. You can also get access to our bonus episodes when you listen on Nebula. When you listen on Nebula, in addition to getting access to the bonus episodes, you also get all of our regular episodes an entire week early and without any ads or sponsors on them. In the bonus episodes, we've talked about a bunch of films, 1917, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Drive, Alien Covenant. There's a whole catalog there. It's growing every month. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula, if you don't have it, is by signing up for the CuriosityStream Plus Nebula bundle, and you can do that by using the link in the description. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.